0: The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. Welcome back to MedPep, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm Dr. Les Schwab, the host of MedPep. I'm a practicing internist, an experienced medical leader, and a trained professional coach. I help medical leaders, physicians, and health professionals develop strategies and plans for managing workplace complexity in today's stressful and depleting healthcare environment. I'm here serving as the guide of Dr. Marie Curious, an early career primary care internist with a large and demanding practice here in Massachusetts. Marie is determined not only to survive, but to thrive at a time when professional burnout is rampant throughout the entire healthcare system. In each MedPep episode, I facilitate a conversation between Marie and an expert with knowledge and skills to help her optimize and humanize her experience practicing medicine. Today's expert is Dr. Jane Liebschutz, who is going to speak to us about career development. But before we jump in, I'd like to ask Marie how she is and has anything transpired since we last met.
1: Les, it's always a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Since our last session, I have been thinking more about not only to embrace the sense of powerlessness, but how do we harness that? and stand up for what I think is right. And there's certainly finesse to it, and that's something I'm working out.
0: Excellent, I mean, that was really kind of an apparent paradox between powerlessness and yet standing up, but I think Mark walked us through how that actually looks very well, and I'm glad that was of such interest and use to you.
1: Thank you, Les. Dr. Leibschutz, I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you. May I call you Jane? Of course. Jane, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for the lot of us physicians.
2: Sure, I am the chief of the division of general internal medicine at University of Pittsburgh, UPMC Health System. I am new to this position after having been at Boston Medical Center for more than two decades And while I was at Boston Medical Center, I functioned as a wellness director for the medical dental staff, and I also did a lot of faculty development programs. So I've had an opportunity to see from all different angles the issues that primary care physicians and generalist physicians face in their uh, work life. Jane, that actually sounds quite novel
1: that you were a wellness director And I must say, BMC must be ahead of its time because I've never heard of this position. What did you do?
2: So it was the very thoughtful leadership of the malpractice group. Boston Medical Center is self-insured for malpractice. And the leader of that saw that physicians were really downtrodden Mm. and needed some wellness. And he donated some money that went to a pot to support some of my time to do that role. And in the period of time, the five years that I had that role, part of it was culture change. Mm-hmm. So developing resources that people could draw on, as well as conducting classes such as resilience training, mindfulness-based resilience training, and then developing a strategic plan for the hospital to really build out this program. And to my delight, it is Really thriving. And there's a high level faculty member who has a position that works with the chief medical officer to work on wellness throughout the institution now. So that was really a win win.
1: That sounds so fantastic, Jane. And much of our podcast series has focused on wellness and how do we thrive by developing some of these skills. And I wonder if some of the things you developed has spread to other organizations, or or you've taken that with you to Pittsburgh?
2: Interesting that you ask. One of the first things that I did, even before I came here, I connected with some of the folks who are doing wellness, and we had a meeting my first week here, and from that, we developed a plan to have a wellness symposium, and that has really taken root, and we've moved forward in a major way and brought in a lot of key players from both the medical school and the health system to do a symposium next winter. And we've gotten financial support as well from the health system. And in addition, our institution has signed on to be part of a physician wellness academic consortium, which uh, was based out of Stanford. And there's now 11 or 12 institutions around the country, large, well-known institutions that are part of this consortium. And so, to be part of the consortium, you commit to surveying all of your clinicians on a yearly basis using some common survey methods asking about burnout, intent to leave, sleep, relationships, et cetera. And then from that, develop interventions. So, I'm very, very excited that Pittsburgh and UPMC has agreed and signed on to this and is committed to this.
1: That sounds fantastic and something we need definitely across the board for all physicians. And Jane, it's amazing that you were able to take that program here in Boston and now spread that to Pittsburgh. And that really seems like something to aspire to in a career. Whereas for me, I feel like I'm just doing the daily grind right now, even though there are moments of joy and I'm trying to hold on to them. But how do I go from job mode to career mode?
2: One of the things about being a primary care physician is that you're really a generalist. And one of the things that I think could give you some focus, career focus, while still doing clinical medicine is thinking about a skill set mm-hmm. uh, that might give you a niche that you could develop sort of an expertise within primary care. And again, it really depends on what you're drawn to. But folks have done things like learn to give buprenorphine and treat addiction in the Mm. office-based setting. And that's something I have done Mm. uh, and really enjoy it and find it is immensely satisfying. And again, you need to have the supports in place for Mm -hmm. that because patients can be difficult if you don't have that kind of support. Another opportunity is hepatitis C treatment, which really can be done in the primary care setting. Other folks do things like joint injections. So again, going to a CME kind of course to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other people do things like skin biopsies or something along that line where you have an expertise that maybe other generalists don't have. And you might, within your context of your practice, sort of be the one who does those a session or, you know, half day a week or something like that. And you find that if you have something like that or breast clinic, cancer survivorship clinic, Mm. there's something where you have sort of an area of expertise and something where you have control over. Mm. What do you think about that? So Jane, I'm glad we're talking about it because I
1: have had an opportunity to express interest specifically tailored to the needs of our clinic where we are. We previously had gynecologic providers on site, and they've since moved out. And I have a growing patient population of young women, and I find a great need to have a service right there in primary care clinic to place IUDs and implants. So I actually approached our leadership about that, and initially it seemed to be hopeful, but it's been, I think, onwards of nine months, Jane, and I I haven't heard back. And I feel like that idea is dying, if not already dead, unfortunately.
2: Is it possible for you to bring it up again? Or do you know what the barriers are for that? Yeah. So
1: I did bring it up a few months after I floated the initial idea. And the answer I got was that they were excited but needed to see if it financially made sense for our organization in terms of time spent to train me, whether it would be cost effective to keep all these supplies on stock, would there really be a grain enough need in the patient population for me to keep this up? And then that was maybe six months ago.
2: What I would suggest, and this is something that physicians don't often get trained in, Mm. is to say, can I work with you on the business plan, Mm. which is basically return on investment? And the other piece, and I know I've heard you talk to some of the other experts in the past, for you to maintain your joy in practice and not quit and not leave them in the lurch, this might be something that you need for your own development and talk about it in that way. Hmm. You know, really leverage your importance to the institution. It's not just can they afford to keep those supplies on site in the inventory, but that can they afford to lose you.
1: So Jane, I sometimes I feel that being one of hundreds of primary care physicians in a particular organization, and this is anywhere across the United States, I am more a cog in the wheel than someone of value, is how I would say is how I feel. So I hear you, but I'm not sure how much leverage I have. I have one datum
0: to disagree, that a turnover in primary care is a $300,000 lost revenue opportunity in the year of turnover. So you have value in that sheer economic sense. Very good.
2: I just read a book, which I recommend. It's called What She Said by Joanne Lipman, who was, until last month, the editor-in-chief of the USA Today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, but I think if you were a guy, you may or may not feel that way. You might. I know maybe primary care providers feel downtrodden, but. As Les said, you are of high value and you need to believe it and you need to go in with the understanding that you're of high value to the organization and ask for what you want. And this to me feels like low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. It's a win-win for you. It's a win for the patients. And whether it may be revenue neutral, Mm -hmm. it is still important and it's with your mission of your clinic, of your practice to be patient-centric. So I would go back and I would, you know, sort of push on them on this a little bit. Jane, I will.
1: All right. I will. I feel inspired to, because I am feeling the burdens of burnout. And I've been thinking about various ways to adjust my schedule, for example, decrease my work hours, whatever it may be to make this more bearable. But- I want it to be better than bearable.
2: Yeah, so I have another question for you. Do you ever have medical students or learners who work with you? You know, I'm glad you brought that up
1: because I was actually approached whether I would be interested in taking on one or two first year medical students, there would be some time compensation, things like that. But I worry that if I take that on too, I would be from you know, the words of one of my mentors, jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Really, just adding on too much to an already bloated schedule.
2: So you're right, it can be a burden, but it also can be really fun and invigorating to have learners and to feel like you're passing on wisdom mm. and spark to the next generation. So again, you have to look at what the Realistic uh, burden would be, and whether you could adjust your schedule. But sometimes having an opportunity to teach, it just really, really makes work that much more enjoyable.
1: Hmm. And Jane, how do I realistically ease into that role? Because now that I think back, I'm not too many years out of training, but in all honesty. For first year medical students, if I have to think back about where the cranial nerves exit the skull, you know, and it's hazy at best. I don't know how well I would be able to incorporate that pathophysiology in terms of their stage of learning.
2: I don't know exactly what the opportunities are, but I don't believe that's what they would be asking you to do mm. uh, if they're having patients come with you to clinic and to be observers. And basically, first year medical students who would come to observe your clinic. I mean, they're just happy to take a blood pressure. On the other hand, if you're talking about doing like a teaching thing where you actually go away from your clinic somewhere else and do teaching, often there's a book and there's a curriculum and you would be given to it and you could look and refresh very, very quickly any of this stuff. Medical students, I mean, they don't even know how to like shine the light in the eye to find the red reflex. I mean, it's very, very basic. (laughs) Okay. And, and, you know, trying to think it was so basic. I mean, they don't know where to put their hands to listen to the heart. They're happy to hear heartbeats. First and (laughs) second year students really know nothing. And so you'd be shocked at how much you would have to teach them. Maybe you wouldn't be shocked. And then if you teach further along students, third or fourth year, or even residents for those students or those learners, You have wisdom, you have ceasing, Mm. you have experience, you've seen patients like this before and that's what they don't have. They have all the book learning in the world, but learning to apply it is something that you have the ability to teach.
1: Right. Okay, maybe another thing on my docket to spice up my work life, Jane. You're giving me a lot to think about today. One thing that I'm still contemplating for myself is, should I take on medical students if I can't even honestly say that I'm thriving in this very career that
2: they're embarking on? I, I feel like that's a really true ethical issue. How you think you would portray yourself to the students or what would you feel like you're supposed to be in order to get students?
1: I think I would have to be enthusiastic about this profession, um, maybe a go-getter, and I think I was maybe in a past life, but I don't feel that way anymore. Even though I do very much care for my patients, perhaps it's my standard that is set too high. I have in my mind a perfect preceptor and I don't see myself that way.
2: So I'm gonna use the analogy of marriage. And, and I don't know if you're married or not. Before you get married, you imagine that everybody's marriage is absolutely wonderful and then you get married and you realize how very tough it is and how some days just being getting along fine is good enough <laughs> and i think there's sort of this image in medicine where you have to be all the time a go-getter or be that you know sort of perfect preceptor but in reality even at your regular everyday self you probably have a lot to offer. And so, and the students are so hungry, hmm. so hungry hmm. for just the opportunity to be in there and to see patients and to learn from somebody. And maybe it's realistic for them to learn what life is in medicine. And you can sort of tell them how you're managing with it. That's right. I should
1: direct them to listen to this podcast series. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Because it actually has
1: helped me quite a bit, Jane, that I'll take that into consideration.
2: And you might, and the other piece is you might find that it bolsters your own sense of efficacy or Mm -hmm. efficiency or accomplishment, realizing what you do have to offer these students and learners. And so, I mean, even if you can't have somebody in your clinic, perhaps sort of volunteering to go to a medical student club or something, if there's a medical school affiliation or going to speak with other folks, going to a young physician program at Mass Medical Society, something like that, where you have something to offer, maybe on a one-time basis, Mm -hmm. can also be really invigorating.
1: So Jane, switching gears a little bit, now that we've heard of, of your journey, It sounds like becoming a medical leader in this process has been really invigorating for you. I was wondering, is there a roadmap to figuring that out? How does a young physician like myself know how to test the waters of medical leadership?
2: Generally, you start with one task. So sometimes, and again, it might sound like it's adding on, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it is getting part of a committee Mm. that makes a difference in your clinic like a quality committee mm-hmm. or maybe you have a patient experience committee or you know again we're all these metrics that we're judged by these days mm-hmm. and maybe if your practice or your pod or your suite has a particular metric that it wants to improve maybe patient satisfaction maybe team building in your you know clinic maybe you agree to be on a committee or you lead a small portion of a project in that way And again, it gives you the sense of mastery, leadership, ownership, diversity in your work. And that's kind of the start where, you know, there's opportunities right in front of you. And then if that's something that you enjoy, then the next step might be to let the people above you know Mm -hmm. if there are any opportunities around quality improvement or some sort of leadership opening that you'd like to take advantage of those. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that sounds very practical. One thing I am worried about, though, is unlike taking on a medical student where that would actually um, be incorporated into my FTE, joining a committee or starting some sort of quality initiative is going to take more time away from my family. And I sometimes joke with my other physician friends that we all wish we had a whole staff of people to help us at home. Um, like a Downton Abbey mother, (laughs) but we don't. And so I have two young children, both less than five years old. And so how do I balance that? It's tough.
2: I would think one thing would be, and again, I don't know what supports you have at home, but whatever you have, get more. (laughs) Whether it's the task rabbit or somebody to pick up your laundry from the dry cleaner or Get the online food shopping or somebody to give you prepared meals or something that would alleviate something that you really don't like doing. I mean, you may like cleaning or you may not, but, you know, you may like shopping, but the things you don't like, you outsource for the moment because especially at that age, kids really, really need you yeah. for you know all their ADLs. Um, <laughs> when they get a little bit older, there's a different kind of flexibility, different kind of need that kids have. Outsourcing as much as you can in the meantime would be what I would suggest. And really the money is worth it. Even if your income goes down a little bit because you're spending all this money elsewhere, your peace of mind, it's worth the peace of mind.
1: Yeah, do you think... It would kill my career if I did wait until the kids were older, practically speaking. Would it be too late to embark on some of these ventures that we're talking about? Should I really start now in the the heat of everything?
2: I think any time is okay. Mm -hmm. I think if you're feeling really burnt out right now, then I'm just was thinking of ways that you might invigorate your career. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel like you have even the energy to invigorate your career, then maybe, you know, if you can go down on your percent effort, even by 10% or something, that may give you enough slight cushion and leeway to give you that sleep, that peace of mind that you need. I don't know. What do you think? Is there an option for you to go? sort of less than full time.
1: Jane, I I definitely think that's something I ought to think about to decrease on my FTE. And, you know, talking about taking some time or taking a break, has that ever been something you've done? Professors get sabbaticals. Can doctors
2: get a sabbatical? Again, it depends on your organization. When I was in my role at Boston Medical Center, I had a physician come who wanted to quit mm-hmm. because she was really burned out. Mm-hmm. And we arranged for her to do a sabbatical where she really stepped away and we covered her practice like you would for maternity leave. Right. And I think she, she took three months or six months and she was able to come back and gave us many more years of service. And so I think it depends on your organization. I mean, if you're in a really small office, I think it would really put a very big burden on your colleagues. Right. Yeah. But maybe you could have higher locum tenens in or something uh, for that period of time. I mean, you can't expect to get paid if you're not working. But if your organization can absorb a period of time for you to be away, that would be helpful. Again, if your organization is like many other you're highly valuable as a primary care doc. And to lose you, as Les said a few minutes ago, is a big financial hit to the organization. But to lose you for three months or six months and have you come back recharged, refreshed, and fully prepared to take care of your patients is a good investment on the organization side. Again, you need to work with them to think about suggesting it. And feel free to contact me offline to ask how we did it. But I think that that might be, you know, an option if you're really feeling at the end of your rope.
1: I think that's fantastic to introduce the idea of a sabbatical because that never even crossed my mind, Jane. I mean, really for women physicians and even men physicians, they don't really have paternity leave, but we literally have to give birth to a baby in order to take time away from work, which seems like a little much to me. So I will be thinking a little bit more about this idea of a sabbatical.
0: Well, Jane, I want to thank you for offering several really interesting suggestions to us about how one might recharge one's career by taking on something a little different. It ran from finding a clinical specialization, to doing teaching, to early work on a leadership development track, to an outright sabbatical. And I think all of these have the potential to offer that kind of reinvigoration that we do need in the course of a career. I also heard Marie say that it's tough to know when to pull the switch, when to make the investment in the extra duty or the diminished income or whatever it's going to take to allow the opening to try something new. You did make the point that sometimes it pays for itself, that it can be invigorating enough by itself, that it will recharge and be a a net positive, even though on the surface of it, it looks like a little more in an already oversubscribed life. And I just wanted to say to Marie that as with any investment, you've got to decide when is the return worth it? When Mm -hmm. are you going to do the upfront, tighten the belt, charge and do it because it seems the return is palpable and real and Mm -hmm. worth going for. That's a very personal consideration.
1: I think it might be a little bit of a leap of faith initially, Les, but I'm willing to think about it. A change has to be made.
0: Indeed, again, I think another theme that Jane brought is that you bring so much to the table, and that it's a change in the name of your own values. Certainly to yourself, but also to the people that you work with. The patients who need that GYN service, the medical students who have not talked to patients, have not observed and have dealt with a real longitudinal relationship. That's what you do, and they have a lot to learn by participating with you in that. Leadership, you've spoken about the need for institutional change, perceiving how stuck a lot of our institutional processes are. That's what leaders do if they get on board, get the chance to do it. So there are many things I think you know that you've got in yourself and it's a matter of saying, now's the time at some appropriate time. Okay, well, I'd like to thank Jane for joining us today on this last series of Conversations with Experts. Thank you again, Jane. This conversation about career development was so revitalizing in a long career is really a good one to have. Next week, Marie and I will be concluding this first season of MedPEP. We're going to be reviewing the entire set of conversations we've had and talk between us about how it's gone and where we're going to take it from here.
1: Jane, it was incredible to hear your perspective and just knowing that you've made it I would say you're still at the peak of your career, but this is now decades later from where I am. I feel really
2: inspired. So thank you. Thank you. It's really enjoyable talking to you guys.
0: If you have a question or a comment about today's program, email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPEP's founder, Steve Edelman.
2: This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group of guest experts. Hats off to project leader, Dr. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer, Douglas Stevens, guitarologist, Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources.